This morning, continuing in a series contemplating the place of the Ten Commandments in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, uh, before the fall into sin, after the fall into sin, uh, before the publication of the Ten Commandments on stone tablets on Mount Sinai, and at that time, and then after that time, all the way up to the inauguration of the New Covenant, we're considering now the Ten Commandments in New Testament fulfillment, because we saw the law of God to be written on the hearts of uh, all the recipients of the or the beneficiaries of the New Covenant. We saw that as a promise in the prophets. Look primarily at Jeremiah and Ezekiel. So in the prophets, we have the prophecy of the writing of God's law on the hearts of God's people. So now we're looking at New Testament fulfillment. First text I went to was 2 Corinthians 3. We looked at it actually last Lord's Day a little in the afternoon. And then we looked at it in a little more detail this morning. The next text I want to look at uh, is Romans 13, 8, 9, and 10. So if you'd like to turn there, you may turn there. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit murder. Now notice the order here. He's not going in the Exodus or Deuteronomy order. But he's citing individual commands of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, Paul's way of saying, there is, but I'm not going to state them, are all summed up in this saying. So individual commands, commandments, can be summarized. Hmm. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. That's a very well-known section, I think, in Romans, in Paul. It's obvious here that love and law are not enemies, at least in this context. So he's speaking to Christians. So we're assuming these are all believers that he's writing to. So there is a sense in which the antithesis between law and gospel, if you consider the law in a different context than the law as requiring perfect, perpetual obedience in order to have righteousness before God. If you take it out of that context, there's another context in which the law functions in a positive way. It's not against love. It's actually the fulfillment. Uh, Love is actually the fulfillment of law. So here, love and law are not enemies, but friends we would say, in the process of Christian sanctification. Now, we must preach the law 
most killingly, I cited a statement by Thomas Watson this morning. What he meant by that, we must try to, in the terms of unbelievers, make them realize that they're guilty and remind believers that they're guilty as well. But this context here isn't preaching the law most killingly. It seems to be very positive. It's a pronomian, pro-law passage in Paul that's very clear. In the teaching of both Paul and, I think we could say, the rest of Scripture, love and law for the believer in terms of his sanctification go together and are even, are even inseparable. There was a movement among scholarly circles in the 1900s that pitted law and love. I don't need law, I just want to love Jesus. Love is the fulfillment of the law, Paul said. You think Paul loved Jesus? Yes. How did he show his love? By fulfilling the law. So you can't pit them against each other. Matter of fact, love guides, excuse me, law guides love. Law tells love what love ought to look like. Now, law and love are necessary for the Christian. Uh, love, uh, the pursuit of that which I think is good uh, because it's good or because it's good, I'm trying to bring a benefit to that which I love, like my w- husband or wife. Love and law are necessary for the Christian life. Obedience to law is useless without love, and expressing our love is impossible without, lo- without law. I just, I just love the Lord. What does that look like? Just saying, I just love the Lord. Um, if you really love the Lord, it's, it's going to be expressed in tangible ways in your life. Honey, I just love you. You know, that gets old after a while. Unless you do things, right, that actually show your love. Now, of interest for our study, I'm going to make three observations. I made seven this morning. Only have three on Romans. But just consider these as we work our way through Romans 13, 8 through 10. I'm not going to give a detailed exposition of every commandment. We're just looking at this text as a New Testament fulfillment of that which was promised in the prophets concerning the law written on the hearts of Christians. And in this case, Paul just very easily goes, oh, by the way, and he cites commands of the Decalogue. First, Paul does not hesitate to illustrate what he means by law in verse 8 by quoting part of the Decalogue in verse 9. Let me say that again. Paul doesn't hesitate to illustrate what he means by law in verse 8 by quoting part of the Decalogue in verse 9. And here is verse 8 again where he says, Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments that are contained in the law. 
You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, are all summed up in the saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So he doesn't hesitate. He mentions law, and then he talks about commandments, plural. Then he cites five individual commandments within the body of the ten. So that's my first observation. Now, this phenomenon, this happening, this thing that goes on of the New Testament, referencing the Decalogue or Ten Commandments in the context of Christian sanctification, I think that's what he's getting at here, suggests at least two things. So Paul does it here in Romans 13. Paul does it elsewhere. We're not going to look at uh, the elsewheres, but Paul does it elsewhere. James does it as well in James chapter 2, where in the context of Christian sanctification, uh, living out our, our, our Christian life, they find a convenient place to go very easily, Without apology or qualification, they go to various commands of the Ten Commandments. So this phenomenon teaches us, uh, suggests at least two things. First, that the New Testament views the Decalogue as the heart of the Old Testament law, just as the Old Testament does. Remember we worked through that? Once the Decalogue is promulgated on Mount Sinai and then incorporated into what we call the Mosaic Covenant, it becomes central and the heart. But before that, there's a sense in which we can say it is assumed to be that way already, even though it wasn't formally propagated, promulgated, which is a technical word for made known publicly in a unique way, on stone tablets. It was still functioning. So just as the Old Testament had the core of, of ethics, we could say, was that which God ended up writing on stone tablets, the New Testament views the Ten Commandments that way too. It's just the, uh, it's an apodictic function. There's a new word. Actually, I've used that word before. It's a technical word where all it means is, um, basic, moral, bedrock, bottom, bottom line. You know, if you said, reduce all the laws in the Bible to their bare essentials, uh, I could do it in Ten Commandments. And I could also do it in two. We'll see how that happens in this very passage, at least the grounds for it. So it teaches us at least this much. And Paul and Peter and, and James, in the context of discussing Christian sanctification, just dip back into the Ten Commandments. It teaches us that, oh, well, maybe they had the same view of them as we get from the Old Testament. Basically, it's the moral law for all men. Uh, even though circumstances, external circumstances and redemptive history can change the application of the commands. But it also teaches us that the New Testament finds in the Decalogue a convenient summary of what we call moral law. There are a bunch of passages that say, uh, that do that. Uh, I'm not going to name them, but there are five or six that I have here where the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is referenced in both evangelistic and didactic or teaching contexts. So sometimes either speakers or writers in the New Testament go back and grab one or many of the Ten Commandments in the context of evangelism. Jesus does that. And sometimes they go back and grab a commandment or two or several of them in 
didactic or teaching sections for Christian sanctification. Commenting on this passage in light of these two observations, John Murray says, but what I wish especially to stress is first that these five, he enumerates, are five of the well-known Ten Commandments in Romans 13. It is in the... As in, it is in the Decalogue that Paul finds the epitome of moral law. So just like the Old Testament, it appears, and I think it is the case, that the New Testament writers assume the basic moral uh, law of Scripture is contained in what we call the Ten Commandments. Second observation is this. Paul teaches us that all legitimate commandments for Christians may be summed up. That's his language here. Remember when I started reading that very slow, I accentuated some words here uh, where he says, and if this is verse nine, and if there is any other commandment are all summed up, summed up. So Paul teaches us that all legitimate commandments for Christians may be summed up. Now, the Greek word for summed up is a rare word in the New Testament. I think it's used at least twice, Ephesians 1 and here in Romans 13.9. Love in 13.9 is a comprehensive command which implicitly contains others. Have you ever thought of that? The love command, love your neighbor as yourself, actually is a summary of other commandments. That's what he's saying here. Uh, Some of you know the Bible well enough to know that there are two love commands, the biggies, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. What are those two commands doing but summing up other commands? So you have uh, a citing five commandments here, and he says, oh, if there's any others, uh, there is a sixth one in the so-called second table that would fit under this summary statement, love your neighbor as yourself. They could all be summed up in this saying, love your neighbor as yourself, which itself is a command. It's a love command toward our neighbors. So the older authors of uh, good Christian literature would say there are uh, the love commands in terms of our love for God are to be found in the first four commandments. Our love, The love commands in terms of our Love for God toward his creatures, toward our neighbors, is to be found in the last sixth commandment. Uh, Why do you know we should break it up that way? Well, uh, Paul seems to do it here in Romans 13, 8 through 10, where he's talking about love of neighbor, and he cites from the second so-called table of the law. He doesn't cite from the first part, at least here. But these can be summed up. Love is a, then a comprehensive command, the love of neighbor, which implicitly contains other commands. Love your neighbor as yourself. What do you mean by that? Well, then you can cite the last six commandments. In other words, that which comprehends or sums up necessarily contains that which is comprehended or is summed up. That sounds weird. What is the preacher trying to say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is a summary of individual commands of the Decalogue, the first, the second, the third, and the fourth. These four are 
summarized and therefore summed up and comprehended by the reduced version. They're within the reduced version, but not word for word. So that moral law can be reduced not only to ten, but to two. But under the two, love God and love your neighbor, is, is summed up other commands. First four, the last six. Paul does it here. Jesus uh, does it elsewhere at least twice. Uh, and Jesus also teaches that the whole Old Testament, the, all, the entirety of law and the prophets, can be summed up in these two, these two commandments. But here Paul is doing it with reference to the second part of the, day, of the Decalogue. Excuse me. Um, so love of neighbor is that which comprehends or sums up that which is comprehended or summed up. And that would be commands 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and 10. What is, how can you reduce the 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th commandments into a smaller form? Love your neighbor as yourself. How can you reduce the 1st, 2nd, 3rd, and 4th commandment into a summary form? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does that look like, first four commandments? What does that look like, last six commandments? You can actually broaden that out as well. But the individual commands are summarized and therefore implicitly contained in the one command to love your neighbor. So here Paul refers to five of the Ten Commandments as illustrations of the law that love fulfills. What is the law that love fulfills? I, I, I think we should say the Ten Commandments. Loving your neighbor summarizes the five commandments of the Decalogue just referred to and suggests that all moral law can be reduced to its bare essentials. See, that's what Paul's doing. He's reducing individual commands to a summary statement. It's okay to do that. How do we know it? The Bible itself does that. So when our confession does it, or when the, the catechisms do it, you know where they got it from. They got it from the scriptures themselves. So... My third observation is this. Paul teaches us that love is the fulfillment of the law. That's what he says. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Love expresses itself by keeping the law of God. Love obeys law. Now, for most Christians, probably... Uh, in our day, not Reformed uh, Christians that have gone to Reformed churches, but for most Christians hearing this, love obeys law, you press the button, he ain't getting no offering today, because that's not true. Love obeys God's, uh, God's law. Well, all right, let me put it this way. Love is the fulfillment of the law. What law? God's law. If you love God, you'll love his law. Oh, how I love thy law, the psalmist says. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Now, you love your wife if you're a husband, and you love your husband if you're a wife. 
Do you always feel like loving them? Don't be lying. Don't be lying to me. You don't always feel like loving them, like desiring their well-being and doing things to secure their well-being. But you know what you do when you don't feel like doing it? Or you know what you should do. You do it anyway. Why? Because above my love for my spouse is I love God. And I know it's the law of God that I should, husbands should love their wives. So if you don't feel like obeying the law, that doesn't give you grounds to violate the law of God and sin. I only do things for Jesus when I feel like it. So if you don't feel like not committing adultery, what are you going to do? Commit adultery? If you don't feel like um, praying, what are you going to do? Never pray until you feel like it? Sometimes I have to pray, Lord, make me feel like wanting to pray. Um, if you don't feel like um, going to church or throwing off unnecessarily unnecessary stuff on Sundays, um, what are you going to do? Just forget church and become a professional football player and play on Sundays? <laughs> uh, I, I hope not. When I don't want to go to church, I go anyway. When I don't want to do what's right to show love for my wife, I, 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 sometimes I do it anyway, out of principle, because love obeys God's law. And these are this passage is one passage. I could have gone to others. I'm not going to go to others. We're going to stop doing the New Testament fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. But these observations confirm uh, other things that have, I think, been established. The Old Testament views the Ten Commandments as the heart of its law, and so does the New Testament, and yet still reducible to its bare essentials. So you can reduce... The law to bear essentials. Love the neighbor, love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The Old Testament prophesies of a day when the Decalogue will function under the New Covenant as the basic fundamental law of God for New Covenant believers. The New Testament confirms this expectation in at least 2 Corinthians chapter 3, here in Romans 13, and many other places. Here's some of them. Ephesians 6, 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 11, James 2, 8 through 11. In Ephesians 6, we have a very interesting text. I do want to turn there very briefly. Ephesians chapter 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Everyone loves, every parent loves the next phrase. For this is right. Mommy, why should I do that? Because it's right. Who says so? God. I got God on my side as a parent. For this is right. Now watch what he does here. 
Let me, let me, let me illustrate what I mean by this is right. Fifth commandment. Honor your father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise. Third commandment's not a, it's a threat, basically. It's not a promise. Which is the first commandment with promise. The first commandment with promise that it may be well with you and you may live long on the earth. Now that is very interesting. The first commandment in the Bible with a promise, the first commandment in the New Testament with a promise, the first commandment in the book of Ephesians, because there's other imperatives, commands, the first commandment in the book of Ephesians with a promise. What's he talking about? The first with a promise seems to imply other commandments prior to this, what we call the fifth commandment, Prior to the fifth commandment that don't have promises, but this one does, it implies this commandment comes in a series of commands in which it's the first with a promise, doesn't it? It seems like it. I mean, if you got the wide Bible lens on, you're going, this is the fifth commandment. It's the first commandment with a promise. In the series of commands in which it occurs, that is in the Decalogue. If you think that's a profound observation, I agree with you. I didn't, dis- I didn't invent it. I discovered it in the writings of other people. It, it's like a no-brainer when you... Well, it's not like a no- It is like a no-brainer. If you're really thinking with a broad scriptural lens and you read that and you start thinking the way I was just articulating it, it's like, well, he's got to be... He assumes the fifth commandment still functions in a series of commands in which it's the first with a promise. The assumption is the abiding validity of the Ten Commandments under the Christian dispensation. That word is an old word hijacked by dispensationalists in the 19th century. It's, it's, it's an okay word as long as you know what it means. So here, here's another example with a Christian uh, apostle in the context of, we assume these are believing children who don't know, don't know their ages, but they have, a, they have believing uh, parents that they're probably still to some degree, under their care, obviously. Uh, in the context of, I think, Christian sanctification, he just easily uses the fifth commandment with this assumption that it's functioning in a series of commands in which the, it's the first with a promise. Another example of it right there. And there are others which I could give, but I'm not going to give them to you. So the Ten Commandments function as basic and fundamental law in both Testaments and under both the Old and New Covenants. And again, in, in the two sermons, or in this sermon primarily, the context of Romans 13 is Christian sanctification, not, not justification. Okay? So we don't work, uh, we don't obey the law of God to get to Christ. The fact that we can't, don't, and can't obey the law is why we need Christ. So our obedience to the law doesn't get us Christ, but once we've gone to Christ, we go from our justification to good works. What are good works? Anything that God has required in his, in his law, in his word. And nothing can be added to it by man or by the church. 
We can't, like, add to the law of God. If we can't add to it, do we have the authority to subtract from it where God has not subtracted from it? We don't have that authority either. So if the my law promise to be written on the heart is this mysterious heart surgery that includes writing the law of God, the ten, that which was written on stone tablets, the ten words on our hearts, this work of renovation, if it means all ten, I don't have the authority to subtract from it or add to it. There's like no eleventh commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, the first four. Love your neighbor as yourself, the last six. And then do what the pastor says. God alone is Lord of the conscience. Not pastors, not churches. But when pastors and the churches they pastor believe that the scriptures teach and I think in this case, I, I think I have a good argument, uh, of the perpetuity of what the theologians call the moral law, all ten of the Ten Commandments, I can do nothing less than preach them all and show you how they look, what they look like in, in actual life as a Christian. Um, and I'll do that someday, but today we're, we're finished. We should thank God that there is a distinction Distinction between justification and sanctification in terms of how the law functions. Okay, uh, for us to be justified, here's how the law functions: do this and live. Don't do this and die. That that's how the law functions in justification. We we can't do it. But if we are to be justified, the law has to be done. But if we can't do it, how is anybody saved? Somebody obeys the law for us. That's, so here's, here's the gospel. But then in sanctification, how does the law function? Um, do this and live. Don't do this and die. We don't want to put it that way. Well, I don't want to put it that way. If you want to, let me correct your thinking. No, we shouldn't look at it that way either. You know, you can look at a lot of old catechisms, how they're structured. Guilt, grace, what's the third G? Gratitude, remember that? Of man's misery, of God's mercy, or God's redemption, and of man's thankfulness. And in the last section of well-structured catechisms, you have a section on prayer. That's how do I show my thankfulness? By, by acknowledging my dependence on God. And that's what prayer is, an acknowledgement of dependence. Oh, God, do this. We're dependent on you to save our children or our parents or, you know, whoever. Prayer and love. Sanctification, thankfulness, gratefulness. What does it look like? Then you have an exposition of the Ten Commandments. Way over there, the last section of the Catechism, in the context of Christian salvation, not the earning of it by us, but gratefulness for uh, for it in our lives. And how do we show our gratefulness? How do we show our 
thankfulness by loving God. And, and what does love look like? The fulfillment of law, doing what he commands. Not to earn our salvation, but to express our gratefulness and thankfulness to God by it, and to also show our good works before men that they might inquire. What's, what's the, why do you, what are you people all about? And you get to tell them. I'm about, I'm about Christ and the gospel. And let me tell you why. Because the law found me out. And I was an outlaw. I was a guilty lawbreaker. And at the, around the same time, at least for me, the gospel found me out as well. It was this, it was God's message of relief for all my ills. Well, that's it. We're going to uh, pray. We'll sing a hymn and then and uh, have the supper. Father, we ask that you would bless your word and our as our thinking upon this subject has matured and lasted for several weeks now. We want it to bear fruit. We want us all to, to love the law more, to mortify our sins, to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, to fulfill the law, to do what it says, because um, there's something more important than us in life, and it is you and the grace you've given us, and your law is a way we can show our thankfulness to you. Never enough, but we can show it. Help us to do that more and more. Now bless as we take the supper, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.